Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll be reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and it's found in your pew Bibles at page 998. Listen as I read from God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. Well, good morning again. It's great to be together on the Sunday after Christmas. It's been a busy season for us, and it's good to be together uh, on this day today. Please keep your Bibles open to Titus 2, which Michael just read for us. Um, We'll be looking at this passage together this morning. I don't know about you, but for the weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, I spent a lot of time on Amazon.com, and uh, maybe you did as well. Uh, Much of my search on Amazon was looking for books for my children, and uh, I ran across one of the categories of books that is one of the most interesting categories on Amazon, and it is the category of the self-help uh, books, self-improvement books. And uh, so I was intrigued, and uh, I decided just to scan through what type of self-help books are out there. And here's some of the ones I found that are some of the most interesting. Uh, here's one, uh, Solving Singleness, How to Get the Ring, Not the Runaround. So maybe that's for you this year. Or how about this one? This is a good one for the new year, 23 anti Procrastination Habits, How to Stop Being Lazy and Get Results in Your Life. It's a good one. This one is for the HSP person, the highly sensitive person. It's uh, how to thrive when the world overwhelms you. Uh, The list could go on and on and on. And it reminds me of a little verse in Ecclesiastes 12, 12, which says, Of making many books, there is no end. Which is, of course, good for the publishing companies. But maybe not so good for us when we actually have a real need and we actually need a real solution to our need. The sheer volume of self-improvement books uncovers something very basic about human nature. And that is that we all have a sense of somehow we don't measure up to whatever standard there is that is out there. And we need some fixing up in our lives. We can sometimes feel like like our life is like trying to bounce in a half-inflated basketball. We give it a try, but every time we try, it just falls flat on the ground. You see, we have this sense, this, this, this desire in us to, to better ourselves, to fix what we think is wrong with us and in the world around us. The popularity of those self-improvement books shows us that we sometimes feel that there is something that we're not measuring up to, and that with a few personality tweaks... A few upgrades, all will be well for us. Well, sadly, uh, the majority, if not all, of those books misdiagnose the problem and therefore prescribe an insufficient solution to the problem. You see, our problem is much deeper and cannot be solved by simple self-improvement techniques or kind of newly formed habits. We have a problem. What is our problem? And then where do we find the solution to that problem? If you and I cannot fix ourselves, 
Where do we go for help? Titus 2, 11 to 14, is a lifeline for us. You see, in this very deep and rich theological passage is a lifeline for fighting the real problem that's in our lives. The real problem is sin. That's what's wrong with us. You know, it's easy to ask the question of what's wrong in the world? You know, we, we see the daily news and, and we'll listen on TV and we say, what's wrong in the world? The answer to that is that we're what's wrong in the world because of the sin that is in us that, that damages our relationship with God and with one another. And so we're in need of a lifeline. And this passage is a lifeline for us. The key to unlocking this is found right at the center of the passage, right in verse 12. You see, these verses here, 11 to 14, act a bit like a triangle. The very tip of the triangle, the top point, is verse 12. It's right in the middle of the passage. And then verses 11 and 14 make up the other point, And then verse 13 makes up the last point. I want you to keep that image of a triangle in your mind as we go through the passage this morning. Because that will help us understand how the whole passage connects together and is our lifeline. And so my approach to the text this morning is going to deal first right in the middle of the passage, right at verse 12, right at the heart of it. And then we'll branch out from there and see how verses 11 and 14 and verse 13 then feed in and support that main point in verse 12. So first, let's look at verse 12. The point that Paul is making in verse 12 is that grace will not tolerate our sin. Let me read verse 12 for us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In order to see the connection here, we need to understand that the word training here, right at the beginning of verse 12, is connected and attached to the grace of God in verse 11. So the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation, but the grace of God that appeared is also a training grace. The grace of God is this instructive grace that is active in our lives, not only for our salvation, but also for our sanctification, our growth and holiness. So the grace of God is actively then training you and I to renounce certain ways of living, to turn our backs on them, and then to embrace certain ways of living. So there's a negative and a positive aspect here to these verses. Notice in verse 12 in this, that the training, as it is, it is attached to the grace of God, is something that God does. It is His action of training. The verb for renouncing is attached to us. That's what we are doing. In a few short weeks from now, one of my favorite Uh, athletic events will begin. On February 6th, the Winter Olympic Games will begin. And uh, I find the Olympic Games some of the most intriguing and exciting events that we get to experience across the world. The reason is because those athletes have been training for years. They've dedicated time. They've sacrificed lots of things in their life for the hope of experiencing perhaps 30 seconds of Olympic glory and fame. They've gone through intense training just to arrive at the games themselves. And the same way that those athletes have undergone intense training for years, you and I are in an intense training workout. 
And our trainer is the grace of God. Our goal is not to win a gold medal, of course. Our goal, our aim, is actually to become more like Jesus. That's what we're aiming at. We want to grow in holiness. We want to become more like Jesus. So Paul says in verse 12 that we are being trained by God to say no to sin and yes to godliness. And what he's describing here in these verses, verse 12, is the process of progressive sanctification in the life of a Christian. That is, that we are growing, and we should be growing, over the course of time and in our lives to become more like Jesus. And according to Paul then, the way he constructs it here is that God is the one who is entirely and wholly active in this process of sanctification in our lives. He enables then and animates us to do what is necessary to grow in holiness. But the way that Paul describes this here is it's not a pooling of energy between what we do and and then what God does and we come together and work together. The emphasis in the verse is that God is the one who is holy and entirely active. He is the energy source of sanctification. And then he then is enabling us, animating us to renounce certain kinds of living and then to embrace certain kinds of living. So it's God's activity. It is his work in us. We have to work towards holiness. We must. But the energy that we bring to the table is provided to us by God. It is given to us by him. Any work that we do in growing in holiness is secondary and dependent upon God's prior work in our lives already. You see, sanctification is is a work of God in which we as Christians grow in these things by confession of sin, repentance, and submission to the will of God. So this verse then, as we think about fighting sin and that problem that we all have inside of us that cannot be fixed through self-help books and fighting sin and getting after it, this verse really should provide us a massive amount of comfort and courage in that fight. We do not understand that just as we've been saved by grace alone, we are also sanctified by grace alone. So in our daily, in our weekly, and monthly, and yearly struggle against sin, we need to understand very clearly that any desire or drive that we have to fight against sin comes to us from God. It is evidence of God's work in us. He is one who gives us the desire to stop sinning. On our own, we wouldn't have that desire. We wouldn't want to stop. Your help and and your enablement to overcome sin will not come from reading the latest self-improvement book. It will not come from, from introducing new personality techniques. Your ability to overcome sin and my ability to overcome sin comes from a work of God. His intolerant grace that is training us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Notice then in verse 12 what God's intolerant grace doesn't want in our lives. His intolerant grace, Paul said, is disciplining us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are the things we should be saying no to, the things he's training us to say no to. 
Some commentators note that the word for ungodliness is a reference to the Christian's misconduct. In Paul's writings, he frequently uses godliness to mean reverence manifested in actions, which is kind of a fancy way for saying our external behaviors, what happens externally in our lives. You see, our our external behaviors, what we do on the outside, is a reflection, ultimately, of our attitude towards God. That's what we need to be saying no to, these ungodly attitudes towards God that get reflected in external behaviors. But those external behaviors is not all that Paul has in mind. He also says that God's intolerant grace trains us to say no to worldly passions. What Paul means here is that we are to deny ourselves not just the external behaviors, but also the internal impulses which drive those external behaviors. So we could say it this way, that Paul is aiming at both our heart and our hands. Both the internal impulses that we feel, the internal aspect of sin, but also the external aspect of it as well. Dealing with sin in our lives is not only a matter of external behaviors. It's actually a matter of the heart. What's going on deeper, down inside of us. And so in our fight against sin, if all we deal with are the external behaviors, if all we deal with is what's going on on the outside and leave those internal impulses alone, all that's going to happen is a new manifestation of those internal impulses. You can take the fruit off of a tree, but unless you change the root of that tree, it's going to produce the same kind of fruit. It must be uprooted from the very core. This is the same point that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes after the heart when dealing with sin. And so he gives lots of different examples. Two of them stand out. One of them is he says it's not just enough to not commit adultery with a woman. It's actually the lustful intent that you need to be dealing with. The internal matter and also the external behavior. He says the same thing about committing murder. It's not just enough just to not murder somebody. If you are angry with somebody in your heart, according to Jesus, you have committed murder. That's radical stuff. Jesus is aiming at the heart, getting deeper down in here. You see, if sin is only managed at those external levels, it's going to show up again in your life some way or some other time. So in our fight against sin... We've got to root it out. We've got to get to matters of the heart of what is driving those external behaviors. The intolerant grace of God is aiming at both our heart and our hands. That's the negative aspect, renouncing sin. There's also a positive aspect that we're being trained to, and that's in verse 12 as well. He says there that we are being trained to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Those first two terms there of self-control and uprightness are probably the antithesis of worldly passions and ungodliness. You see, self-control has to do with controlling our internal passions. It's self-control. It's internal. The uprightness that Paul mentioned has to do with the external conduct towards other people. So that's why both those terms are probably the antithesis of worldly passions 
and ungodliness. But according to one commentator, by adding the word godly at the end here, at the end of this list, Paul is reminding us that the Christian life is one that is completely and utter dependent upon God. And here's why. It's possible for you and I to exercise a fair amount of self-control. And we can do so without God. It's possible to live a moral life without God. But it is impossible to live a godly life without God. If we're going to live a godly life, He has to be at the center of our life. You see, one could get the idea that the Christian life is is only a matter of following a certain set of rules and performing in an acceptable manner, but doing so would miss the point completely. You see, we're not a group of people who just adhere to a list of do's and don'ts in our lives. We are a group of people who are dependent upon God to produce the godliness in us that is worthy of the calling that God has in our lives. Thomas Chalmers, in his essay titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, describes this perfectly for us. What he says in his essay is that in order for this old affection for sin to be expelled from our lives, we must have a better and more powerful and attractive affection. So we can't just think that we're just going to get rid of this old affection unless it's replaced by something that is actually more powerful, something that's better. And in essence, what we see here is that this new affection for God must be at the center of our lives. If the new affection is for following rules, if the new affection is performing in certain ways, those things are simply not powerful enough to get rid of the old affection for sin. Our affections must be for God. He alone is the only affection that can expel all taste and all affection for sin. So he must become more exciting, more beautiful, more wonderful to us than any pleasure we get out of sin. And he is more pleasurable and more exciting and more beautiful than any sin. You see, as long as we're in this present age, we are being trained by the intolerant grace of God to say no and yes at the same time. In just a few days from now, we're going to turn the calendar from 2013 to 2014. And if you're like me, which I assume you are at some level, at the end of the year, I like to look back at my life. And I like to take stock of things that went well, things that didn't go very well, things that I succeeded at, things that I failed at, and set goals for the year to come. And as you do that this week, and as I do that this week, I want to encourage us to take a look at our spiritual life amongst all those different categories. How has this past year been spiritually for you? And perhaps even this morning, as you scan over this past year of your life, you, you can easily come up with all kinds of sin in your life that, have, that actually caused you to feel really discouraged this morning because your fight against sin has not been very effective. You haven't seen much growth. You, the sins that are there that, that have been there for years just keep tripping you up over and over again and you're wondering why. God's means of grace to train you and to sanctify you are his word, 
His providence, and His church. These are the means of God's grace that He's given to you and I. And so as you scan over this past year, I want you to to ask yourself a couple questions. Are you daily spending time meditating on His Word? Are you trusting God in the daily things that happen in your life, the good things and the bad things? Are you trusting in His providence? Are you actively involved in relationships with other believers, with this church that are encouraging you towards godliness? These are the means of God's grace, His Word, His providence, His church that He's given to us. And so perhaps as you scan over this this year and, and you see things that keep tripping you up over and over again, perhaps you'll think and realize that maybe you're deficient in one of those areas. You're not accessing one of those means of God's grace on a regular, ongoing basis. The most dangerous thing for you and I would be if we have completely lost the desire to say no to sin and have no concern at all to say yes to godliness. That is the most dangerous thing of all. And so as you scan over this past year, think about these things, meditate on them. Perhaps you're here this morning and and you come here this morning and you're encouraged by the growth you've seen in your life this year. There's been sin in your life that have been like spider webs for years and by God's grace, they've just been shredded and you've overcome sin. Praise God for his sanctifying grace in your life. Rejoice in it and praise him for it. Well, what else helps us then in our fight against sin in this present age? Well, I think this passage helps us understand two things. So verse 12, keeping this triangle in mind, verse 12 is that God's intolerant grace is that activates in our lives. The other two points of the triangle, verses 11 and 14, and then verse 13. And these verses here are supporting and driving towards this present age right now. And they describe two fixed, immovable points in human history. Let's deal first with verses 11 and 14. The first event that's fixed in human history describes a past and completed action of God. You could look down at your Bibles with me. I'm going to read verses 11 and 14 combined together because they bookend the whole passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the first fixed event in human history is the appearance of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. One commentator notes that the word appearing here is often used in Greek literature to describe a hero breaking into a story at a point of desperation and helplessness. One of my favorite superheroes growing up was Superman. There's a lot of different superheroes to choose from. And Superman to me was, was the best. And uh, throughout the past many years, there's been many different renditions of the story of Superman. There was TV shows and all different kinds of different movies that were produced, but none of them measure up to the current movie, Man of Steel. Maybe you've seen it. It tells again the story of Superman and how he arrived here on planet Earth from planet Krypton at a moment of desperation in human history. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, 
that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the time was just right, when it was the perfect time, when it was the fullness of time, God sent Jesus, the hero, here to this earth at a point of desperation and helplessness. And when he came, he came full of grace and he brought salvation with him. You know, the entire Advent season that we've just come through as a church is meant to cause us to look back in faith and remember what God has done through Christ at this grace. That's why the candles are still burning up here this morning. We need to keep looking back. We need to keep remembering that first appearing of grace in Jesus. That grace of God is not just some abstract concept. The grace of God is a person. It is Jesus And you know, as a church, we've been meditating on the prologue of John 1, and we've read some of it this morning. And verse 14 stands out like a shining light out of the darkness. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so when we look, we look back in time and, and we see that, that Jesus' appearance was, was planned before the beginning of time, sovereignly plotted on the timeline of history. And in verse 13 and 14, excuse me, 11 and 14, we learn that when he came, he brought salvation and he redeemed us from all of our lawlessness. Verse 14 explains to us how Jesus accomplished God's plan of salvation. It simply says that Jesus gave himself. He gave himself to redeem us. Reminds us of Mark 10.45. In Mark 10.45, we learn that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave up his life willingly to pay the price to God for our sin through the intentional shedding of his blood on the cross and thereby purchasing our redemption and securing our rescue. And because of that, we are forgiven. And the penalty of sin is forever taken away from us. He willingly gave up his life as a payment for our sin. He brought salvation. He accomplished it through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead. The Bible is clear that this salvation cannot be earned. It cannot be merited by any effort of our own. It is an act of grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is it. It is done. Verses 11 and 14 also tell us for whom this salvation was accomplished. Paul says in verse 11, For all people. And then in verse 14, for us. The reference here to all people means quite simply that God does not discriminate in dispensing his grace. He doesn't discriminate by class, gender, age, or race. His salvation is effective for all kinds of people in spite of their pedigree. In spite of their pedigree. If he did discriminate, then it wouldn't truly be grace, would it? All of this 
is God's past grace shown to us in Christ. And so the question is, how does that help you and I in our fight against sin right now, in this present day? How does looking back in the past help you right now? I want to mention two ways. There's probably more we could mention, but two. First, our debt is paid. You know, in our fight against sin, it's easy to, to get into the mentality that, that there's still something that needs to be paid to God for our sin. You know, what, what, what Christ did on the cross was good, but not quite good enough, and so we, we still have to do a little bit more to make up for it. A few years ago, my wife and I had a, a financial situation that, that we were dealing with and handling just fine. But somebody in our life recognized the financial need that we had and decided of their own accord to wipe that debt away from us forever. I don't know if you've ever had that happen in your life where someone in, a, in the financial realm just sees your need and just says, let me take that from you. Let me take that away from you. It's an overwhelming experience. It's overwhelming because it reminds us of the generosity of, of God. How much more than the debt of sin that we owe to God that Jesus just wipes away through giving himself up for us. What amazing generosity, canceling our debt. There is nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing more that you can do. It is done. It is accomplished. It is over. We don't have to prove ourselves to God. We don't have to prove ourselves to each other through acts of holiness or piety. The debt has been paid. Which leads us to the second thing. Our account is full. Our account is full. So not only did Jesus clear that debt away and zero it out forever, he actually fills up the ledger of our lives with his perfect righteousness. Yes, he cancels the debt, wipes it out. But then he fills up our, our account with positive balance. You see, we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. Our spiritual account is filled with his perfect righteousness. His righteous deeds are counted towards you and me when we are in Christ. Notice verse 14. It's this action of God where it says that he purifies for himself a people for his own possession. It's an act of God that he purifies us. We are pure before God through Christ. We're no longer wearing the dirty rags of our past. Instead, we are covered with the pure, righteous clothing of Christ. Our account is full because of him. What this means for our fight against sin today, in this present age, is that we are able to live guilt Free. Guilt free. You see, I wonder if many of us are living still with a heavy weight and a burden of guilt in our lives. And so, even here this morning, when we're talking about verse 12, some of us here have a really sensitive, guilty conscience. And so, when I am talking to you about saying no to sin and yes to holiness, your guilt antenna just goes out the roof. Because you can feel like I'm laying another burden of guilt on top of you that you already feel. I want you to keep your eyes fixed on the immovable grace of God in Christ, which frees your guilty conscience 
The verdict is in, and it reads, not guilty. If you are in Christ, you have been purified for him. You belong to him. You have been set free. You are free. You are free to fight sin in your life, not under a yoke of guilt, but under the protection and freedom of grace, a grace that is training you. At the cross, Jesus took the guilt of your sin and your sins upon his shoulders. So you should allow your guilty conscience to drink deep of that grace and free you. Not so that you can go on sinning and doing what you want, but so that you can live for righteousness sake without a burden of guilt. He says at the end, so that you can be zealous for good works, ready for the good works has for you to do. The appearing of grace. The second event on the timeline of history is a future action of God. It's a point in the timeline of history that has not yet occurred, but it will happen in the future. And so this is the bottom part of our triangle. Verse 12, verses 11 and 14, and now verse 13. And it reads this way. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that second fixed point in the timeline of history is the future appearing of the glory of Christ. Right now, in this present age, we are living in between these two monumental fixed points in history. The grace of God appeared in the past and brought salvation. And according to verse 13, there will be another appearing of Christ and he will come in glory. It's a second event that's fixed on the timeline of history. An event that I am confident, and I hope you are too, will happen in the future. Friends, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will come fully arrayed in all of his glory, all of his power, all of his dominion, all of his majesty will be on full display for us to see. He's coming in glory. Uh, You'll remember Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, it's after Jesus had gloriously resurrected from the dead. He'd spent 40 days with his disciples. They're talking about the kingdom of God being restored. And suddenly, Jesus just disappears up into the clouds before the disciples' eyes. And I, I imagine in my mind's eye, the disciples standing there just staring up into the sky. And then two angels appear, and they say to them, what are you looking at? In the same way that you saw him leave and go to heaven, he will come back again. That's when the waiting began. And we are still waiting, like those disciples, for the appearing of our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of Jesus. Now, Paul here isn't using the word hope like we sometimes use the word hope. We often use the word hope to mean kind of a a wishful expectation for something to happen, but we're not really certain if it will. So, for example, as you look ahead into this next year, you might hope for a new car. Or you might hope to get into the college of your choice. Or you might hope to receive that promotion at work. Or if you're a child here this morning, perhaps you really hoped this past week to receive the rainbow loom at Christmas. And you would hope for it with all of your heart, but you weren't certain it was going to happen. 
wishful expectations, but not built on any kind of real certainty. Paul says in verse 13 that we are waiting for our blessed hope. Hope is not the verb in the sentence. Hope here is a noun, which is further described in the rest of verse 13. You see, hope in the Bible connotates something that is absolutely certain, absolutely confident that something will happen because God has promised it will happen. So biblical hope is not just kind of wishful thinking, not just kind of a shot in the dark, uh, kind of a, you know, throwing a penny into the, into the fountain. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. To have biblical hope means to have complete confidence in the promises of God. Our life is so full of uncertainty. Will I remain healthy? Will he or she always love me? Will the economy implode or or will it grow? Will I lose my job? Who's going to be the next president of the United States? How will my kids do in school? On and on. Uncertainty in our life. As Christians, we can be no more sure of those things than anyone else. However, we can be absolutely certain of God's promises to us in his word. As Christians, we don't walk through life without hope. We walk through life with hope and the confidence and surety that God will fulfill all of his promises to us in his word. And so our foundation and our, our, our kind of growth here of hope is, this, is built on the foundation of God's character. He is a promise keeper. Our hope is built on his character. The hope we have in verse 13 is that Jesus will appear. He will return in glory. And so I want us to keep that fixed in our mind, an event in the future. But how does that help you today? In your fight against sin, how is looking into the future going to help you today? You know, you and I walk daily with a certain amount of discontent and struggle with the sin that is just there. Our fight against sin can become overwhelmingly exhausting for us. It's because we don't have it fully in us to overcome the sin that remains. It can be exhausting. But if we keep our eyes steely focused on the future appearing of the glory of Christ, we can look forward and hope with confidence. And that puts our struggle today and sin in its proper light and understanding. Notice the way that Jesus is described at the end of verse 13. He says, He is our great God and Savior. Now, it's obviously a full affirmation of the deity of Christ, but it also affirms something very particular, and that is that Jesus, as our great God and Savior, when he comes, will one day deliver us from the sin that remains in us. In saying that, then what I'm saying is that there's a future aspect to our salvation. There's a future manifestation of grace that is coming in your life. And it will be experienced when he returns in glory to establish his kingdom forever. There will be a day when when sin is completely eradicated from your life, when it is done away forever. The power of sin has been broken in your life, but the presence of sin will one day be eliminated 
when he returns. That's our eschatological hope. That's our confidence for the future, that when he comes, he will wipe it away. So in our struggle against sin, and your fight against it today, this afternoon, when my fight against it this afternoon, we don't fight as a shadow boxer. You know, a shadow boxer just swings at nothing, accomplishing nothing. No, actually, we have the prize fighter in our corner. We have the heavyweight champion of the universe who will deliver the final knockout punch to our sin when he re-enters the ring of this world to establish his kingdom forever. The reason is because when he comes, when he comes in glory, sin has to go away. In the presence of his glory, sin cannot exist any longer. So when he comes in glory... He expels sin forever from us. When he comes for his bride, when he comes for his church and establishes his kingdom, the power and darkness of sin in our lives is gone forever. That's how it helps us today in our fight, knowing that we don't fight as one who has no hope that we'll ever be able to get over this sin or that sin. We fight as one who has hope in what's to come in the future. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in your fight. Our champion is coming back. He's coming. That is our hope. God's past faithfulness to us in Christ stimulates us to pursue holiness now as we wait for the future fulfillment of his promises. Two fixed points in the timeline of history past appearance of grace, the future appearing of glory, these things are the stimulation and motivations for living and pursuing holiness right now in the midst of the fight. And so may we keep our eyes fixed on those things, looking back in faith and looking forward in hope at his future return so that we don't lose heart right now today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have the promise of your word from Galatians chapter 4 that tells us when the fullness of time had come, you sent Jesus. You accomplished salvation for us. That gives us confidence for the future, Jesus, that you will one day return. And when you come, you will establish your kingdom. Help us today to keep our eyes, the eyes of our heart fixed looking back and looking forward, trusting in you that you will sanctify us wholly. Help us, Father, to live for you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.